Hi, and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. Last month, we spoke with Legal President Kristen Browdy, Legal Favorite Professor Art Leonard, and the Brennan Center's Alicia Bannon about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legacy. A week later, we had the opportunity to chat with Chris Kang, senior counsel and co-founder of Demand Justice, about the fight for the future of the federal judiciary. Just yesterday, Chris was featured in a wonderful piece in New York Magazine called Burn It All Down, Liberal Lawyers Who Want More Than Court Packing. It really got me fired up and ready to go. So today, we have just 11 days until the presidential election, and we're just one day after the Senate Judiciary Committee, acting without a quorum, voted Trump Judge Amy Coney Barrett out of committee and onto the Senate floor. So I am very excited to speak with my former Lambda Legal colleague and judicial noms expert, Sharon McGowan. Sharon is the Chief Strategy Officer and Legal Director of Lambda Legal, the country's largest and oldest legal organization committed to achieving full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and individuals living with HIV. As Legal Director, Sharon oversees Lambda Legal's efforts to resist any attempt by the Trump administration or other opponent of LGBTQ equality to thwart or roll back our community's progress towards full, formal, and lived equality. She has been heading up Lambda's efforts to fight the confirmation of Trump's most dangerous judicial nominees. So let's dig right in. Hi, Sharon, how you doing? I'm doing okay, all things considered, Eric, but happy to be here with you. Loaded question. I'm so glad that you're here. And I'm particularly excited because I have a ton of questions that I want to ask you so that we can educate our listeners on everything ranging from the rush job to confirm Amy Coney Barrett to exposing the particular harm that her confirmation presents to LGBT people, women, and people of color communities. But before we dive in, I was wondering if you could just start by giving us an idea of how Lambda has been leading the fight against Trump's judge picks. Put this nomination in perspective for us. What damage has been done in the last four years? Well, Eric, it's hard to overstate the damage that has been done to the federal judiciary. And unfortunately, I think this is a product of the fact that uh, those forces aligned against civil rights and LGBT rights specifically have prioritized the federal judiciary in a way that I think progressive groups have not always understood and valued the importance of this work. And so what we saw immediately upon the Trump administration uh, taking office and working in partnership with the Senate majority, uh, including Leader Mitch McConnell, is that there, there were many, many things that they, they couldn't do or couldn't get through, but the thing that they could do and they prioritized was filling the federal bench with as many nominees uh, as they possibly could. And so what we see now is after almost four years, over 200 federal judges, these are lifetime appointees, 
uh, are now on the bench, including obviously sort of the, the two Supreme Court justices that we already have. And unfortunately, we seem to be barreling down the path toward a third Supreme Court justice. But 53 Court of Appeals judges and over 160 uh, judges at the district court level. And as we know, there are so many things that a federal administration can do that can be reversed by future administrations. We have lived in that whiplash for these past four years, seeing how many of the advances made during the Obama administration have been unwound, undone, undermined by the Trump administration. But these are lifetime appointments. And so what we are going to be looking at is generations of judges uh, who were put on the bench, not in spite of, but in many ways because of their history of anti-civil rights advocacy, and in many cases, specifically because of their record of opposing LGBTQ equality. And Lambda has done some great work in educating the community about how dangerous these nominees are. You had a report about one in three Trump judges having an aggressively an open record that's hostile towards LGBT people. Um, so it's just so important that people realize that we have these flashpoints where we talk about the importance of the Supreme Court and all eyes are on the courts, but really under the radar, he has been doing this work, Trump and, and Mitch McConnell, to pack the courts for the last four years. And it's been Lambda and groups like, like civil rights groups who are trying to uh, highlight just how important an issue this is. No, absolutely. And, you know, look, it is beyond ironic and beyond hypocritical to see, you know, Republicans wringing their hands right now of, oh my God, you know, there's going to be court packing, oh, you know, when what's actually happening is really a legitimate conversation about what kind of reform is going to need to take place in light of the damage that's been done to the federal judiciary. Because what we have seen, to your point, is the sort of throwing out of every rule, practice, tradition, you know, in the Senate, whether it is about sort of the number of hours that you have to debate a nominee. We obviously know that under this administration, they threw out the rules that would require judicial nominees to have more than just the bare 51%, even for Supreme Court justices. And so that's right, you know, Lambda Legal has always uh, taken the courts very seriously and, and had a fair courts project that in many ways, targeted the state courts because they were often so much more vulnerable to political pressure because they were often elected or had otherwise sort of exposure to these political wins. But with the nomination of Justice Gorsuch, you know, after the debacle of Merrick Garland's nomination not being moved forward, I think we at Lambda Legal really understood that we had an obligation to help people understand why this mattered because the courts are our playing field. That's where we do our work. And so it's not a zero risk proposition for us to be in the business of speaking out against nominees, individual nominees who we fear uh, cannot be trusted to apply their oath to ensure equal justice under the law for everyone. But I think we also recognize that if Lambda Legal wasn't out there sort of helping people connect the dots, then we couldn't really complain that people didn't understand what was at stake. Wow. So to your point about the hypocrisy in the process, 47 million people at least have voted already in this election. We remember Merrick Garland and the no confirmation and election year rule. Why is this nomination and confirmation of anyone to replace RBG moving forward um, so dangerous and such a, a sham? Well, you're absolutely right that, you know, Mitch McConnell 
early on sort of indicated that the Merrick Garland rule was really not, you know, an election year rule. It was the, I don't like Obama. I am not interested in allowing you know, the, the president to have his nomination and I'm going to use the election year as my excuse for why I'm not doing it, which of course then falls out the window when we're now, you know, not necessarily even as far out from the election as we were in 2016. But the fact is that this process has been taking place while voting is happening. You know, it's not even appropriate to say that we are, you know, you know, a few days or a few weeks shy of the election. The voting has, has been underway for weeks, as you point out. And you know, the, one of the most sacred obligations that a president has is being entrusted with selecting nominees for the Supreme Court, but also it's the Senate that has a role here too. And the Senate, the composition of the Senate is up for grabs as well. So the fact that we have uh, the Senate majority basically adopting the we're going to do it just because we can get away with it rule, uh, which is what we see here, is obviously you know, a, a rejection of all of the ostensibly you know, logical reasons that they'd offered in the past. But I think it's also a reflection of the fact that they know that their agenda is one that is so radical and so extreme that they don't trust the American people to actually endorse it through their vote. So they need to cram it through in order to make sure that they grab as much power as they can before the people once again have their say about the direction that the country goes. All right, so let's talk about Amy Coney Barrett. She was nominated to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Why is Barrett a threat to everything Ginsburg worked to secure for women and other uh, marginalized groups? Well, her judicial philosophy could not be further from the philosophy that Justice Ginsburg brought to the court, one that was designed to expand opportunity, to expand access, whether it was voting rights. Certainly, we know that uh, she was obviously a champion for decades around women's rights, but her philosophy, you know, on the court was one that was about bringing people in, right, and, and allowing our country to, to grow and experience the promise of the words in our constitution and, and the words in our laws that haven't always necessarily had uh, meaning in, in an equal way for, for different communities. And so you have somebody like Amy Coney Barrett who has been explicit in her rejection of things that are so core to American life, including the ability of people to control their own reproductive health and espousing this originalist view, which frankly isn't even really originalist because there's a way in which they actually recognize that an originalist view calls into questions everything from Brown versus Board of Education to the existence of paper money, right? So they actually know that they have come up with this sort of formulation that doesn't even actually sort of fit what they want. What they want is the ability to cherry pick the decisions that they actually don't think fits their moral and um, political worldview and to be able to decide, you know, which of these apples they can sort of throw out of the apple cart while kicking it to the curb. So, you know, the, the notion that somehow Justice Ginsburg being replaced by a, a different female judge should be viewed as a wash um, is as outrageous as suggesting that somehow when Clarence Thomas was nominated for the seat of Justice Marshall, that somehow uh, that was just sort of an even swap. Um, and of course, it's also important to recognize how many key civil rights decisions over the past decade have been really closely divided 5-4 decisions. And often, you know, we see the Chief Justice, who is certainly not somebody uh, who is a consistent supporter of, of progressive constitutional values, has often sort of been that moderating force. And so what we see now is uh, Amy Coney Barrett potentially 
having the ability to swing the court to a much more radically conservative 6-3 majority and what that will mean in terms of the chief and uh, himself to be able to serve in that moderating role uh, should really cause everyone tremendous concern. Wow. So let's get into some of these cases and what was revealed during the confirmation hearings and what wasn't. Um, she refused to say whether she believes cases from Casey to Roe, Lawrence to Obergefell were correctly decided. She used the outdated term sexual preference, rejecting LGBTQ identity. We know she served on the board of a school that wouldn't even admit the children of same-sex couples. What do we know about her that can tell us what she is likely to do on the court? Well, certainly all of the things that you've identified uh, should give us uh, a good sense of why she was selected and why she is being rushed through with the level of fervor uh, that she is, right? This is someone who the forces that want to solidify a radically conservative majority in the Supreme Court have no doubt will be in their camp, right? Without any sort of question. And I think in some ways, you know, we, we certainly know that Justice Gorsuch has been someone who has been very challenging on civil rights issues, but the fact that he brought his textualist approach to the Bostock decision from last term that vindicated the protections for LGBT people, I'm sure that that only sort of heightened the urgency for those who are determined to use the courts to roll back civil rights for LGBT people and others. So, you know, the fact that this is a nominee who repeatedly, you know, lectured at events that were sponsored by anti-LGBT hate groups like the Alliance Defending Freedom is, is a part of organizations on the board of organizations that are, are flagrantly and proudly discriminating against LGBT people. Her own language comes out of the playbooks of organizations like ADF. Um, I think are all the things that that lead us to a position of there's not a question. It's not one of these like, oh, well, let's see what happens if she puts on the robe and then everything will be sort of a new question. You know, everything about why she is here and people are falling over themselves despite the cries of hypocrisy and despite the damage that's being done to our democracy, they are determined to get her on the court because they feel so confident in what she will do to undermine the civil rights of LGBTQ people and others, frankly. Wow. So literally immediately after the election, the court is poised to hear a major case in Fulton v. Philadelphia. What does a majority with Amy Coney Barrett potentially mean for the future of LGBTQ rights cases at the court? What's at stake in that case? And what's coming down the pike, you know, for folks who might say, oh, well, we'll enact the Equality Act, and then what could a court possibly do? Can you give us a sense of what exactly a court could do? The thing that we need to be really cognizant of is that even if we pass incredibly important legislation like the Equality Act, which is still needed, notwithstanding the important decision that we got from the Supreme Court last term around Title VII and by extension the other federal civil rights laws, what we are seeing in cases like Fulton and elsewhere is this attempt to constitutionalize the right to opt out of non-discrimination laws that people don't want to follow. And they use their arguments around uh, sort of a religious or moral belief, a belief that rejects the idea that same-sex couples uh, are can and, and should be married, 
the fact that their families are legitimate rejects the uh, legitimacy of transgender identity and their right to sort of live full and equal lives. The uh, notion that all of those views will somehow be constitutionally elevated as, a, as an exit ramp from any actions that we take as a society to try and root out discrimination is, is really quite frightening, right? Because that isn't something that you can go back and fix legislatively. I mean, we know we always remember, you know, the Lilly Ledbetter Act was a way to go back and, and correct an error that the Supreme Court made with respect to protecting rights in the workplace. So they went back and they, and they fixed the law to make that clear and to eliminate any confusion. Once you constitutionalize things, um, that isn't something that is amenable to a legislative fix. And the fact that we have a court that is reaching out regularly to find ways to take up these kinds of constitutional arguments, including, for example, you know, the, the call that we saw from Justices Alito and, and Thomas, you know, basically suggesting that Obergefell itself needed to be revisited because there weren't enough constitutional opt-outs for people built into that decision, um, really suggests that so much of our work hangs in the balance because the ability to dilute the meaning of these protections really threatens to bring us back to the period that Justice Ginsburg described as, as skim milk marriage and skim milk protections. So it means that we need to not only continue to do this work very carefully, but we also need to make sure that we are creating the larger public narrative to recognize that the weaponization of religion in this way is not actually consistent with our constitutional values, not actually consistent with sort of what kind of democratic society or participation and access and opportunity does not create a license to discriminate based on one's individual personal moral beliefs. So this conversation has me fired up. I want to take us into the future and say, okay, so the Trump administration has packed the federal courts with young, unqualified, mostly male, and nearly all white judges. Okay, if progressives take control of the government, what is our plan to rebalance the courts? What type of nominees do you want to see from a, a hype, knock on some serious wood, but a, a, a a potential Biden administration, and then take us a little bit farther to structural reform is on the table, not just for the Supreme Court, but Biden cast this the other day in terms of all of the federal courts, really. So take us to, I know that's a, a packed question, but I want your thoughts on all of those pieces. What kind of judges do we want? What type of reform do we need? And how do we take action? Well, I hope that the sort of wake up call of the last four years will ensure that moving forward with uh, qualified nominees, and by qualified I mean people who aren't just, you know, have practiced law for 15 years in a corporate environment and, and don't actually sort of bring um, sort of a record of advancing, you know, all of our constitutional values, including equality, justice, liberty for marginalized communities who have often needed to rely on the courts to have those rights vindicated. You know, I think it's going to be really important to have that be prioritized in a way that and Eric, you've heard me say this before, any issue that anybody cares about, you should always think of the, the judge's question as being the plus one that you bring to any party, right? Because all of the work that we know could be happening under a more progressive administration, certainly um, from a Biden administration, but if there is a, a more friendly Congress as well, we have no reason to believe that our opponents won't be running into these courts that are packed with nominees who are picked precisely because of their hostility to the kinds of advances and progress that we're trying to make, uh, you know, won't be, you know, sort of the, the tool that they use to try and hold back the 
the efforts uh, that have been endorsed uh, by an election that put new people in the seats of decision-making power. So I think that you know we have always recognized that it is important for our federal bench to, and all judge positions actually, to reflect a full range of experiences. And so that means not just only having prosecutors, but actually having people who have experienced the challenges and the injustices of the criminal justice system because they have been in other roles, including criminal defense roles. I think it's incredibly important for there to be civil rights lawyers and plaintiff side lawyers, as well as those who have, and in many ways, I would say even we need more of those now than ever uh, to understand the ways in which the justice system plays out in a practical way to affect people's lives. And so there are obviously the substantive unanswered questions that we would want people to come to those positions with bringing civil rights values. But I think it's also important to recognize how much damage has been done to shut the doors to the courthouse generally through things like mandatory arbitration, other ways in which people are basically you know, prevented from having their rights vindicated, having their day in court. And so those are all of the values uh, that we would hope would animate any next wave of consideration for who should be in these incredibly important positions of public trust. And look, you know, Lambda Legal is, plays, plays in the courts. That's where, that's where our primary battleground is. And so you know, we are obviously sort of watching all of this very, very closely. And we'll be interested to see what kinds of options gain traction. Obviously, uh, Vice President Biden has indicated that it's on his radar screen as something he wants to seriously consider. We would obviously hope that any input that he is receiving includes input from civil rights advocates who will be disproportionately negatively affected by what has happened to the courts over the last four years. But absolutely courts and court reform should be on the table, needs to be a high priority for a next administration, knowing that so much of the progress that we want to see and the repair that we want to see done could potentially be unwound through the damage that's been done to the federal judiciary over the last four years. Great. And so we have largely uh, policy nerds and legal folks that listen to this podcast. What is your call to action for them in terms of just getting involved with this confirmation battle because it's not over yet, though it's it's getting down to the very end here. What's the call to action right now and going forward to make sure that we have progress towards a progressive direction for the courts? So I think there are a couple of things that people can do. You're absolutely right that until the final vote is counted, uh, you never know uh, how these things may play out. And we are in a very heightened uh, awareness period in terms of political sensitivities. And so to the extent that people have not only the ability to vote, uh, but also to call their elected representatives, and certainly if they are in states where uh, their elected senator has not necessarily come out definitively one way or the other, um, that you have your voice and you should use it. And to the extent that you have uh, people in your life who look to you for guidance, who live in those places, uh, reach out to them and give them the knowledge that they need to make the call about how to get engaged between now and when, when the vote happens. But again, going forward, I think part of what needs to happen is this sense of energy, this sense of outrage needs to be carried forward so that it doesn't become a situation where 
you know, if a, the election turns out, you know, in a particular way on November 3rd, people breathe a sigh of relief and then think that everything will just sort of self-correct on its own. Nothing ever self-corrects on its own, right? Our rights have never been self-executing. We absolutely need to continue to push the importance of the courts, of our entitlement to expect courts that treat people with fairness and equality. And so it is a combination of both staying engaged in the fight for our courts after November 3rd, but also thinking about ways that you personally um, might be part of the solution. And so that should be thinking about whether or not you might wanna be a federal judge someday or being involved in your local bar associations or involved in the structures in your community that help advance the kinds of nominees that will bring the values that can correct the, the damage that's been done to the federal judiciary. So I think people have lots more tools um, than they often realize at first glance and many, many more ways to exercise their their influence and their power and their knowledge uh, to the work that needs to be done because it is, you know, we, we will all kind of race to November 3rd, take a deep breath, but then everybody needs to eat their Wheaties because <laughs> one way or the other, you know, there's a lot of hard work that's going to need to happen starting November 4th. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been such a, you know, I'm obviously really excited about this. I know you are. I can tell our listeners care deeply about courts and justice. And so, um, you know, if you don't leave inspired after listening to this, yes, the fight is difficult. Yes, uh, Amy Coney Barrett is absolutely as terrible as we've heard, but there are steps that we can take and things that we have to do. Nothing happens without us pushing back against all of the negative uh, things that we've suffered over the course of this administration, and we have to stay in the battle. I think I would just remind folks that, you know, things were obviously better um, in terms of the direction of the country with respect to LGBT civil rights at the end of the Obama administration, but there was a lot of work that was left to be done. And so, again, just as a reminder about the importance of staying engaged, you know, not only sort of when it comes to what's happening at the federal level, but, but Lambda has been fighting for LGBTQ equality at the state level all of this time. We know that so many of our uh, siblings in, in the LGBT community, people living with HIV, experience vastly different levels of real equality in their life as opposed to the legal equality that they are guaranteed on paper. Um, and so to the extent that you're interested in learning more about Lambda Legal's work to secure full lived equality for LGBTQ people and everyone living with HIV, I would certainly encourage you to check out uh, our webpage, lambdalegal.org. If you haven't already uh, sort of signed up to get our fabulous Twitter feed, I have all my Twitter mojo from Eric and my fabulous colleagues uh, at Lambda who, who put out great content in a fun and engaging way on Twitter. So just stay engaged, stay involved, because we absolutely cannot do this work without your support. So thank you so much, Eric, for having me today. And thank you. We just had an episode where we highlighted all of the great work that Lambda is doing from the HIV uh, service member lawsuit that, that you all won at the district court level to the uh, absolutely taking on the transgender military ban to the healthcare uh, rollback for trans folks. You are doing such critical work and courts are absolutely essential to all of that work. So thank you for the fight and we are your partners in this battle. Thank you. Take care everybody uh -huh. and, and rest up and eat those Wheaties. <laughs> the breakfast of champions. And thank you so much for listening. 
This and future episodes of the Legal LGBT podcast can be found online at iTunes, on Spotify, and at legal.podbean.com. Thanks for listening.